Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. On today's episode of The Deep Dive, I'm joined by Alicia Huavero, who was very patient with me with the pronunciation of her name, so I thank her for that immensely. She's the Professor of Philosophy Emeritus at Princess George's Community College, Maryland, USA. She's the author of Context Changes Everything, How Constraints Create Coherence, and Dynamics in Action, which was published in 1999. She's also co-editor of Reframing Complexity, Perspectives from North and South, published in 2007, and Emergence, Self-Organization, and Complexity, Precursors and Prototypes, published in 2008. We have a lot of things to get to. This has been a labor of love, getting this conversation together. And I want to thank you so much for being on a deep dive with me. How are you this afternoon? Very well, thank you. And I thank you so much for your patience with my tech problems. I'm a man that never criticizes anyone for tech issues as as everyone who knows me and knows me well. I'm the least handy, the least tech person anybody would ever want to meet in their life. So I reject all of it. So when it (laughs) works, it's a miracle. When it doesn't work, it's okay. The universe is working the way it should. That's my guiding philosophy. So I'm really excited to have this conversation. We, We had an opportunity to chat just a little bit before we actually started recording. And, and one of the things I really wanted to jump to is complexity as a term, as a subject matter. It's something that I that I feel in my estimation was more of a of a niche world of 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 how people thought about and interpreted business events, social events, what have you, and has now become far more of a of a catch-all terminology. You know, if you're on if you're on LinkedIn, you will you will see complexity thrown around a lot. You will see VUCA thrown around a lot and all these kind of terms. So I'm kind of connecting two things. And as I explained to you at the beginning of the show, when some terms become too ubiquitous, they begin to mean everything and then conversely strangely mean nothing at all. So as someone who is who's clearly an expert in this field and has dedicated so much of your of your professional and academic work and pursuits to it, I wanted to give you an opportunity to share how you think about complexity and maybe give some some feedback as to my thought about how the term has become a little bit too ubiquitous. Oh, I think you're absolutely right. The term has become way too ubiquitous. Um, And I think the reason for that is it already existed in in the language, but now it's starting to be used for all sorts of things. I sometimes say that I was into complexity before complexity was cool because I was interested in complexity in the 80s, I'm embarrassed to say, when I was trying to work out 
questions. I'm a philosopher by training, questions about causality and all sorts of metaphysical issues and agency and so on. And the question of how in, an intention causes behavior. Um, the traditional way of looking at thing at causality as cause and effect relations was derived from Newton and, and, and the modern scientific revolution. And that is A causes B if A imparts a physical force on B. Fine. So, but then imagine you're, I don't know, in Houston or, or outside Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and you're looking at one of these enormous, amazing oil refineries. You look and you go, how on earth does anybody keep track of what imports energy to what, to what, to what, to what? Well, it looks like it's impenetrable, but in fact, it is in principle in, it's in fact impenetrable, but it's in principle very easy to do. You just, it's very tedious to sort out all those complicated relationships. So I think in science, particularly in chemistry, physics, and biology, where I take my metaphors from, it was very clear that an ecosystem, you look at the little pond scum in the backyard. Biologists understand and chemistry folks understand that this little thing is an awful lot more complex than that oil refinery. That oil refinery is complicated. And so what's the difference? What's the difference is that unless those pipes have been designed incorrectly, you never get any feedback from the output back into the input sometimes you don't get a whole bunch of separate variables interacting in such a way that when those particular variables combine in that particular way, under those particular circumstances, given that certain history, you get a whole different output. That does not happen in an oil refinery. Or you look at an aircraft carrier, you go, oh my God, look at this complicated machinery. But it's the same thing. It's all designed to operate on the basis of linear causal relationships. They may be difficult in practice to keep track of, but in principle, they're very easy. That's what I and scientists mean by complex systems. Yeah. Now, what's interesting, I suppose, from your point of view is, I wanna say that a culture, a society, is more like that little pond scum than it is like that oil refinery. Because exactly. you've got a whole bunch of variables, we would call them, that are interacting simultaneously. And I want to emphasize temper, they are, the order in which they interact will affect them as well. So it's not just that they're, that it is those variables, but the order in which they interact is almost as important. Think of a recipe. <laughs> it doesn't matter that you perform the steps. It's the sequence in which you perform the steps Absolutely. that's equally important. And so what I want to say is that all those variables interact to then produce an emergent outcome. What do I mean by that? In the case of complicated system, you'll end up with a product that you didn't have before, but it isn't an emergent product in the sense of it's not a total integral whole that has properties that then affect the components that created it in the first, in the first place. place. 
See, so you get all these weird feedback loops that are interlevel. I don't know if you remember way back when Douglas Hofstadter wrote Gödel, Escher, and Bach, and everybody was really into Gödel and Escher and Bach because he called those strange loops, right? They're loops between parts and holes and holes and parts. And that is what, in my view, a complex system is. Yeah. Now, why is that important? First of all, because it gives credence and credibility to what I would call a whole, what I just called, I think, an integral totality. Whereas from the point of view of modern science, meaning the science from Galileo to the beginning of the 20th century, there were no coherent dynamics according to that way of thinking of metaphysics. What looked like a whole, W-H-O-L-E, was nothing more than the sum of its component parts. It could therefore be decomposed, technical term is reduced, to its component parts. And the way to understand a complex system, I'm sorry, the way to understand a complicated system is to reduce it to its component parts. That's what we call analysis break down the whole into its parts and look how, and then, but even somebody as far back as Montaigne, Michel de Montaigne in the, what is that, 17th century, I guess it was. He said, il faut tuer pour analyser. You've got to kill something to analyze it. Meaning what? If you, that doesn't work for an organism. No, you, but people have tried. Absolutely. People tried because the reigning, <laughs> You know, the reigning paradigm at the time was holes are just aggregates. They are therefore decomposable into their parts, and their parts interact with each other only in terms of these billiard ball notions of causality, which is one pushes the other one. Now, when we talk, and I I know you're interested in design, you're interested in issues having to do with culture. When somebody thinks about how does a culture influence me, influence how I frame my thinking, how I frame my ideas, how I even frame the questions I have about something. I would say that is an influence that is going from a whole, a cultural society in which I am embedded. Now, I think that word is important, embedded, because if you brought a Martian down and plunked him next to me, that Martian would not be affected by what's around him or her, it, because that Martian is not embedded. What do I mean by that? All those complex variables have not interacted historically. You know, if your family has been living in the same location for 500 years, or or if you've lived in a place for 35 years, you're, more, you're embedded in it the way that I would say, just being plunked into it, you aren't. Once again, the traditional understanding of reality was that Newton thought there was a time and space were like a container for Newton, but they were like a featureless, empty container. You just plop things down there, and the container itself did not affect what was in it. Things were more static. That's not the way cultures work, correct? So to me, the correct use of the term complexity is one that is attempting to describe those 
constrained interactions, those constrained relationships with the environment, spatial, temporal, historical, that affect. See, and notice that I'm sneaky. I, yeah. I didn't use the word cause. I said affect the components in them. And causation is is a big part of this, right? Or the Absolutely. what I, what I have in my notes, and and you can again, my notes lead to questions, and so I have I come into this with certain ideas and biases and thoughts around how all this yeah. works, and then I just try to pose the idea, right? And I, I wonder if there is not a an obsession with causation, or or the flip of that, and, and I don't want to say these as um, as terms that are equal to one another, but again, in the way language is used, there's some sort of like the official language, and then there's like layman language, right? I'm I'm yeah, big yeah. on layman language, um, yeah. but you know, this idea of of causation and and also the flip of that to me would be like predictability. Yes. Right. That the, yes. the more yes. we yes. can put these things in a way that makes sense to us through. Which means the third word is explanation. Explanation. Right. Do we have too much of an obsession with with that? Right. I know there are mysteries out there, right, that that human nature drives us to understand. But I'm thinking more in a in a more modern perspective where you know, in a business setting, in a social setting, we're using these ideas to make grand predictions. Absolutely. And then those predictions are driving policy. And and someone like me would argue, you don't know enough to say that there is a, a, a causation happening, right? So that's me, but I want to hear from the expert. Okay. So <laughs> I absolutely agree with you that there's been way too much emphasis on prediction, but I think it follows logic. In fact, it does in the history of philosophy. It follows logically from that whole model I was talking about earlier, about holes being nothing more than aggregates. Uh, and so on, because if you put all of those parts back together again, the theory told you, you will be able to predict exactly how it's going to come out and what's going to happen. Correct? So the idea became commonplace that if you couldn't predict it, you really didn't have it right. That if you couldn't predict it, you really didn't understand what was going on because you hadn't teased the part. You hadn't analyzed all those components the, right, the way you should have, right? Now, what's fascinating to me is what happens to predictability as soon as you acknowledge the premises about complexity that I just mentioned. In other words, that a complex system has all these intertwined variables and that the whole system works in a path-dependent historical fashion. That means what happens today is doesn't happen in a vacuum. It happens as a result of a whole bunch of history uh, and so on as well. And so therefore, what does understanding and explanation amount to when you're talking about a complex system? What does it mean to understand a complex system? Now, why do people keep trying to force a complex system into a predictability Newtonian or 
shoehorned, right? Shoehorned it into, because in a complex system, very small change, again, this is technical complexity theory, complex dynamical systems theory, for which Ilya Prigogine got the Nobel Prize in 77. The thing about complex dynamical systems is that you cannot in principle predict an outcome. Very small perturbations or fluctuations, because those intertwined variables intertwine in a non-linear fashion, as opposed to Newtonian systems that are all linear. Again, follow the follow the, the pipes in the in the um, oil refinery, right? But when you start talking about all these strange loops we were talking about, it's a non-linear phenomenon. And that is what? You can, you can negatively affect an ecosystem. And the interesting thing about these complex systems is that they, quote, degrade gracefully. They, you know, you can, you can, you know, I can have my spleen removed. I can have my gallbladder removed, you know? Yeah, this homeostasis of complex systems, which a, an oil refinery does not have. You put a wrench in the exact correct pipe you're looking for, you'll gum up the whole system. But a, a complex system is set, it has evolved, in, especially in living systems, to be pretty, pretty resilient, tolerance, adaptive, robust, to handle perturbations. But when you stress a complex system too far close to the edges of its range of viability, I don't want to say stability, because nature does not select, complex systems do not select for stability, they select for resilience. Yeah. But if you push it too far to the edge of uh, its range of viability, then you're going to get these non-linear phase transformations. So all of a sudden, from limping along, having damaged the, the ecosystem and the planet for X number of millennia, all of a sudden, whoops, you get this. It's like the transition from water to ice or from steam to water. It's a disc, it, it can be discontinued. It's like, a, it's like a stepwise transformation rather than a nice, easy slope you can handle. So you can understand why policymakers, CEOs, business leaders, they're going crazy because things are changing so fast. And the, the cycles of these loops are looping so quickly that it looks as though the integrity of the system is falling apart. And but but I think hanging on to the vain or, or youth, impossible hope of prediction is, is not the way to do it. And I want to I wanna talk a little bit about the the fast, this element of of fast. I, I'm t I'm taking additional notes as you're going because I I want to I want to talk about history and I want to talk about ways of knowing things, right? But before we do that, I don't want to lose lose the thought. The idea of things think the rate of change is faster than it's ever been, right? And the world again in the layman term is getting more and more complex, right? Like you hear these things all the time in, in the popular, you know, parlance of the day. And, and oftentimes it gives me pause. And I say to myself being, you know, somewhat thoughtful person, you know, is this really true, right? Like, is it true that 
things are moving faster or things are more complex, right? In the layman's sense of the word. Like, I don't know. Sometimes I feel that and sometimes I don't feel that at all. Right. So no, I'm that's curious. True. That, like, that is true. That is true. It's my because perception these are very layered. And yeah. so you might feel very comfortable at one layer, but although at another layer it isn't. I'm very interested in epidemiology lately and, and I'm I've got a small startup that's trying to apply complexity to infectious diseases. And in that case, I think you can see the complexity. First of all, when there were no jet planes and crossing the Atlantic took five days and going around and you had you know, around the world in 80 days and so on, immunity to infectious diseases had a chance to develop before that outbreak popped up again on the other side of the globe. Now, the cycles of transmission, the cycle of migration of pathogens, for example, because of globalization, be it a bug that's uh, traveled on a ship and now shows up on our shores or on, on at the other side of the globe, or literally a sick person already, you know, all we have a lot more urban environments and th therefore the uh, interface between human beings and nature is getting more stressed that you get these complex phenomena rapidly spinning out of control and cycling and therefore creating a pandemic. It's funny, you look at the Spanish flu in 1918 and it took a year and a half for it to even get on the other uh, to South America. So it is faster now. It took what, three months from, for the virus to go from the first spots where it was discovered all the way to the entire world. Less than three, four months, it was everywhere. So in that sense, I think ecological complexity, the rate of change affecting ecological complexity has changed. I think that the rate of change of educational uh, skills that you need to survive in the world or in a certain society have changed. So let me ask this as an, an additional question. Does that sort of ecological connectivity that you described and the ensuing rate, should there then be, and this is a suggestion on policy, right? And and seeing how things are enacted. You know, one a person like myself would would hear that and and witness this and say, oh, well, this is an opportunity for us to move into a, a space of more complex cooperation, oh. right? Where we are creating, ideating, and working with a different set of of goals with all of the information that you just shared with with us in mind, right? And what I see, Layman had again, is these ecological realities at the new rate moving, but yet we are still tethered to oh, ideas and, and policies that absolutely. speak to a slower time. How do we confront add to, that. And <laughs> to the mix, um, the notion of Darwinian selection and the idea of competition, which fits very nicely with the billiard ball notion of causality, forces that impact each other and push each other out of the way, correct? But what you see in 
I stick my neck out in this book because I am not a physicist, I'm not a cosmologist, but I stick my neck out because it seems to me that that if you look at the cosmos with a different lens, maybe with a lens of complexity, what you find is a tendency to produce what in biology are called symbionts. In other words, what I want to say is that those complex variables interacting in a constrained and nonlinear fashion oftentimes produce a whole that is coherent that is greater than what we had before. That is like a, what are they? Lichens, I I'm going to get this wrong. Lichens are a symbiosis between fungi and algae, but they are an entirely new phenomenon, correct? And they are able to access resources that the fungi and the algae alone by themselves individually cannot. And if you fast forward the film, I would say that societies are the human analog to that kind of phenomenon, that societies band together in order to be able to create holes that afford opportunities and benefits that are, that are unavailable to the solitary, to the hermit out in the cave, correct? So my plea at the end of the book, and I, I, when I wrote this, I thought to myself, oh, people are going to accuse you of being too woo-woo, kind of, <laughs> you, you sort of lost it to the woo-woo crowd. But my appeal is that unless we understand how these interdependencies are formed and we actively seek to foster them, right, we're in trouble. So I am absolutely agreeing with what you're saying, that we should be looking for ways of cooperation. But again, think of it. How are you going to do that if the only model of causality you've got is push-pull billiard balls? You can't do that. You can't force people. You can't push people. Hey, look, you, I order you to cooperate. People are not going to do that. So that's why I find it very interesting to take a, um, a, le to take a lesson from, again, biology. What do you have in biologists? You have catalysts. And what's interesting about a catalyst in a chemical sense, but it's interesting that that's another word we have adopted in everyday language that, mm -hmm. oh, so-and-so, they're a catalyst for change, isn't that it? We talk about people, what do we mean by that? And again, I think people throw that word out and they're not thinking about exactly what that means. Yeah. Let's go back to the science. In chemistry, what's interesting about a, a, uh, a catalyst is that it allows for an interaction to occur without itself transferring energy. In other words, it didn't issue a command, an edict, you know, at the at the force of a of a gun, you know, mm -hmm. with the threat of it. But rather, in a sense, the way I think about it is that a catalyst modifies the landscape in such a way that the outcome that that catalyst catalyzes right? Yeah. Happens more easily. So long time ago, I wrote a paper, I mean, we're talking decades ago, as the manager's catalyst. Because I think what that does is it leads to an entirely different model of policymaking. It's policymaking is catalysis, not as thou shalt, correct? In but what that means is that a catalyst, in a sense, represents 
all these interactions in the context and by just being there, it affects the likelihood that this is going to happen rather than that. So the role of a human catalyst would be to more so look for existing bubbles in the society that are forces for good, if you will, but bubbles, bubbles that promote coherence, solidarity, interdependence, and mutualism, as opposed to trying to shove it down somebody's throat. Yeah, that, the, that just won't work. The, the edict by, by gun or by pen, <laughs> depending Correct. on Correct. on how one looks at it. And I, and I think that, that gives us a chance to get back to what I was saying earlier about the different ways of knowing. Yes. Right. Because as I'm, as I'm reading the book and this means nothing, but like the, a lot of the names that are, are mentioned in the book from a philosophical perspective are ones that people will be familiar with as they, as they pick the book up, right. And, and read it and, and understand it. And, and then we've been talking a little bit about this Newtonian way of understanding the universe, right? That the billiard balls and things kind of one thing leads to another. And, you know, you click the thing on the desk and it goes back and forth. And, you know, these are, these are all the popular things that I think in our minds, those of us that, that have come up in a Western tradition are very familiar with, right? But I do think that there are different ways of knowing, right? And what you introduced in, in your previous answer, this this idea of there being a mutual benefit to things and looking for those bubbles within the society, amplifying them. amplifying them. You know, there are ways of knowing that surface those in the same way that a, Newton, a Newtonian Correct. and Platonic and, and Socratic methodologies surface something else. How do we invite a broader exchange of ideas that include other ways of of knowing? Even when that, like I do this a lot with organizations or clients that I work with, I admit that I don't know the answer, right? Like I feel a lot of people want to say, oh, I know everything. And I'm like, no, I don't know the answer, (laughs) right? Even that is sometimes sacrilege. So big preamble, but how do we introduce those different ways of knowing in a way that can act as a counter, but also surface these these other opportunities? That's an incredibly important question. And I don't know the answer to that either. (laughs) Good. That's a good thing. Now we can discuss. (laughs) Now we get it right. But again, I I just read a lot of the, the biology and the science, and all of a sudden you start, and there was this wonderful philosopher of complexity theory who has since passed, Paul Sillier from South Africa. And he talked about membrane, like like the eardrum. What does the eardrum do? The eardrum kind of adjusts what's inside to what's outside and filters what's outside to what's inside. And that is sometimes, again, analogized by complexity theorists as, you know, in in Darwin's uh, natural selection, it's called the survival of the fittest. But talk about ways of knowing. Because of that whole... philosophical, metaphysical framework I spent the first 15 minutes talking about, the term survival of the fittest meant the one who got rid of all the others, correct? It's a bellic, is that the correct term? Warfare kind of, you eliminate everybody else and that's all that was left and that's the way you do it, correct? But apparently people who have been studying 
Darwin's theories in the context of Darwin's times. That's a plug for my notion of you don't really understand it unless you understand it in context, because all these things influence, and therefore you use the term in one sense that then 150 years later gets interpreted differently. Apparently, the word fitting is like more like you go to a tailor and you get fit for a new suit. So yep. what does that's not a I killed it and I'm the only one that survives a way of knowing that is a all right, I'll take it in a bit here and I'll let it out a little bit there. And so it's kind of like what the eardrum, the membrane, I just suggested it was doing. Something so more malleable. It's malleable, but then what that needs is it needs, who's the translator there? The translator there is the, the tailor, correct? And the tailor kind of knows, all right, if I just the, the, the suit itself here, but hey, you look, wait a minute, stand up a bit straighter. Oh, look, if you stood up a little bit straighter, then this part would fit the way it was. So look, try to see if you can stand straight when you're wearing the suit. Or don't wear that wallet inside your inside the pocket because it's going to bulge out. So, But what that means is that, and I'll use more consultancy terminology, the interface between what I think I know and what I think I'm knowing that interface has to be flexible, dynamic, open to new information. Complex systems are all by definition open systems, meaning they exchange matter, energy, and information with their environment. That's what I mean by open. So that's why we use the term closed society to refer to, especially in sense of information, correct? That it's a closed society information-wise, correct? But Open systems exchange matter, energy, and information with the environment. So if you have a an interface that is flexible, you have a better hope of achieving the goal that you just expressed than if you have a rigid one. And boundaries like physical walls in evolution were what the prokaryotes had way back when they were single-celled. Evolutionarily, they developed porous permeable membranes. And so anybody who thinks they're going to save a society by building a wall. Yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> um, right? And context came up, right? And, and exactly, you know, exactly. it's in it's in the title of the book. And it's, and it's one of the things that really excited me about a reading the book and then having this conversation because context changes everything, right? It's, in, it's the title, right? <laughs> but it feels, and so I'm again getting touchy feely here. It feels like context is um, unappreciated. Oh, that's the whole often. point of the book. That's the whole point of the book. Or, it's or even unwanted. <laughs> well, it's unwanted because if you start looking at it, then you might have to think about, well, you know what I thought I was saying or thinking or so on. It doesn't really work. Yes. But I think it's even worse when it's not even noticed. Hmm. That's even worse because how do you fix something you don't even notice? At least if you're noticing and you don't want it, somebody can accuse you, hey, you're in denial. You know, wake up and smell the coffee. We've got all those other phrases we would use, correct? So maybe we've got psychological techniques to deal with denial. But when it's not even noticed, that's that's really difficult because... I was invited by one of your other guests. Um, he had a uh, Dave Snowden had a contract with 
uh, the government in Singapore, and he invited me along. And it was very interesting because that was after 9-11 and the folks in the in the government in Singapore were trying to figure out, you know, everybody after 9-11 said all the, all, the sig- all the signs were there, all the signals were there, but nobody connected the dots. But the question that these folks in the Singapore Defense Ministry were asking themselves is, how do you even notice dots that are not in your framework to notice? Yeah, that's what Correct. I call invisible dots. Right. Absolutely invisible. It's, Absolutely. It's invisible easy dot. when, like, I never liked the connecting the dots metaphor. Right. Because, you know, I remember being a kid, right? It's you get time. that it's book and, you know, or the little, you know, it'd be on the back of a menu. Yes, 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 yes. yes. You know, collect the doctor's the, office. Yeah. The letters <laughs> or the numbers. Right, right. And I was, you know, I was with, and I would tell folks this and, you know, kind of give them my pitch. Like, anybody can do that. Right. Yeah. Like, you're yeah, just correct. following something. Correct. It's, well, it's, it's when the, you can connect what, you can't see. Correct. Correct. That's what's difficult, right? Absolutely. That's where the expertise absolutely. comes absolutely. in, right? And absolutely. To your point about not even being aware of, of the context, it, it brings me back to history. Absolutely. Right. When it, it seems to me, and I'm curious to get your thoughts on this, when when history becomes fuzzy and unclear, right. um, and you know. History is written by the winners, right? I get it, <laughs> right? But it doesn't mean that we can't uncover Correct. more reality, more context. There's that Correct. word again, Correct. right? It's as if you were How does that change back. things? It's as, as if you were zooming out. So yes. you, see, you, see, you see things that wouldn't have, you wouldn't have been able to see. You missed the forest. <laughs> I mean, they all, again, for, for the, it's really interesting, but it does seem absolutely to work that way. And you mentioned expertise, and I think that's important. Absolutely. But it's not book learning expertise. And says an academic who worked in teaching all her life. It's more the expertise that a mentee learns from a mentor or a or the old Buddhist notion of the master or the or the what is it you you what are you learning there that you're not getting in book learning in book learning you've got do this 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 it's got all the all those instructions but you don't have all the yeah but you know if you come across this don't do that yeah don't do the other or don't so so but but when you are an apprentice correct and you're learning on the job you're learning through expert you're Learning how to ride a bike, you cannot learn to ride a bike from a book, from a textbook. Simple. Yeah, you got got to skin some knees to do you that. Gotta, correct. And so, <laughs> oh well, yeah, I guess this is what I did. And sometimes you're not even sure what it was, but after a while, what you start getting is a feel for a complex system. And people who are programmers will tell you, you know, I, I, I just get a feel for this, for the for the process and the system. And so, and and I always bring up the example of a police sometimes tell you, trust your gut. If, if there's something that te- that your gut tells you is wrong about what, trust your gut. And, and it's as though if we had had signals, uh, people before nine one one, focusing more on what's wrong with this picture, rather than how does this go nicely. And how do I force it to fit this nice diagram that's in the textbook? 
what's wrong? Something doesn't quite fit. Then I think maybe that's the way of realizing. But for that, and again, complex systems are very interesting that way because diversity in realizations, what I mean by that is a comp- an ecosystem can be realized in a whole bunch of different ways. Same ecosystem, it, it has different modes in which it can operate and that's fine. But the more modes in which it can operate, the more resilience it's going to be. That's a, that's a form of diversity. The more diverse components, the more diverse pathways for interacting, the more resilient it's going to be. And so it's interesting to me that aside from the ethical considerations about diversity that we hear about with regards to hiring and so on and so forth, there's a damn practical reason for being yep. interested in diversity because, because the more diverse, the more those individual voices and eyes and visions and background and ways of knowing will explore the possibility space to maybe find a crack that allows you for allows a solution to emerge that you wouldn't have had if you had a monolithic uniform homogeneous input components what that um yeah the desire for that oftentimes seem to over the desire for the homogeny right that that sameness seems to counteract the arguments that Correct. that you you and others have given for the benefit of of um diversity and, and however whatever the frame is that that we that we happen to be talking about and it comes down to also something mentioned in the book this idea of identity right like yeah, yeah, yeah. how uh, how yeah. does identity yeah. fit into these conversations because we are complex beings right as as individuals we have a shell right to which we we move in the world but that varies and changes right and you know i think we're at a at a time when we're seeing you know really you know some some people talking about so-called identity politics in that yeah. they're they're not well-meaning actors right like they're not they're not having good faith conversations but i think they are some who are having what i would call good faith conversations around you know what are the constraints you know using the word of the words in the book uh, what are the constraints to identity politics um be me being me i would probably offer you know what is what are the invisible correct that we can use that can be surfaced to be to be bigger so you know again preamble but introducing that that notion of identity into complexity you know how how does that affect how we how we think about the way those terms move together and i'm keeping an eye on the time for you no and again i think i think <laughs> that the notion of resilience and stability are important and 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 perhaps if you are raised in a set under a set of conditions that are horrendously unstable that are insecure then i think the natural reaction is to default to a an emphasis on identity that is rigid and stable meaning it doesn't fluctuate much because that's the way of, of coping mechanism so i think 
that by providing a stable context, be it a safe space in a corporation in which to express one's opinions, safe space, respectful space that allows people to express their opinions, then that allows for the other, the otherness, the diversity, not to be interpreted as threatening. See, and hopefully that might be the way to enlarge the possibility space to allow those other voices into one's own head, if you will. You know, it happens to me whenever I, whenever I travel to Europe and you go to Spain and it's Spanish food and you ask the waiter and how is this uh, dish prepared? The way it's always been prepared. And, you know, coming from the United States, you're like, Oh, if you said that in the United States, that would be enough to be the, the food critic would say you're stale, you're boring. But it happens in Italy, it happens in Germany, it happens for this. So I don't think there's any place in the world where except in the United States we can say, okay, what are we gonna eat tonight? <laughs> Chinese, Thai, Ethiopian, of Italian, no, 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 and so on and so. And it isn't threatening. You walk into a restaurant, well, I may never have eaten that particular cultures but 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 it's not it's not threatening to my to me and if i didn't like it well i didn't like it but but it's not threatening to me and and how do we how do we get to that point where it's not just food it is somebody else's opinions about certain things that may be held very close and, and does that mean relativism no i don't think so and that upsets me tremendously the argument again from some quarters is Oh, look, if you don't have these very clear-cut, stable, eternal virtues and values and so on, then you're on the slippery slope to relativism. And my answer, again, goes back to Aristotle. Did Aristotle said the three places where context matters, the three fields where context matters are ethics, politics, and medicine. Why? Does that mean that for Aristotle, medical practice was relative. And again, we're talking very primitive medicine, but I think we can apply it today. And the answer, I don't think is so. What was Aristotle's point? You teach the overall principles of medicine, but how to apply those principles in a particular circumstance. So it may well be that we could all agree cruelty is wrong. But, but then the question is, how do you interpret cruelty in this con context or in that context? How do you prevent it from happening? That is then open for conversation. Why do you think torture of a prisoner is, is okay and it's acceptable? Why would you think that? And the, the West did that with, for example, killing. Murder, the term murder does not technically mean killing. It involves a killing, but it means unjustifiable killing. So we have workarounds that way, correct? And I think um, laws against usury and, and interest-bearing loans, that there were ways that these were then interpreted. Oh, yeah, so the point of usury was not to take advantage of another person who then couldn't defend themselves because you had more money they didn't and you were lending the money to them at, at, at ridiculous rates and that would drive into bankruptcy and you'd take over their stuff, all right? So really, the problem with usury is you shouldn't hurt other people, another person. So yeah. how do we do mechanisms? We haven't, we haven't mastered that in um, the U.S. healthcare system. Uh, exactly. exactly. <laughs> or in uh... exactly, and that's exactly the kind of conversation that needs 
to happen when people start thinking a tax is robbery on the part of the government well wait a minute how about driving on pothole less streets and how about not having access to a public library and how about having students who don't who have old books and so on everybody wants the services but nobody wants to pay nobody the taxes wants the rights no, and yeah. no, everybody wants the the rights, and nobody wants the obligation. They're all they all go together. That that we are interdependent, and that means it's Janus face. It's like that little statue that the Greeks had that faced both ways. So where the word January comes from, it's the end of one year and it's the beginning of another. It faces both ways, and so you've got to take both. You know, we want we want autonomy and independence, but then we feel. Uh, isolated and lonely. Well, wait a minute. Therefore, you're going to have to put up with the pain in the neck um, demands that your relatives are asking yeah. for because we, we are have to have we have to deal with our neighbors. Correct. Right? Exactly. And I both think macro that's and micro. Mutual, that's mutualism, and so nature figures out a way. All right, so we've got these that, that do this and that. The interdependent pathways have been discovered by a lot of the lower four floor and fauna now you know we need to we need to follow that model instead of the model of um billiard ball physics if you will. absolutely you know I, we can go on forever but i got to get to the final two segments of the okay. of this show and this is the one you were nervous about though for no reason oh no <laughs> off the dough is the first of our two cl um, closing segments okay. and i only have three of these okay, okay. they're very easy you are obviously someone who is incredibly well-read, well-versed, have thought about a lot of subjects quite deeply. Don't shake your head. These are true things. <laughs> if there is anyone that you could think of in history that you would love to befriend, not collaborate, but just go to have that pint with, anyone in history, who would that person be? You know, probably the person I mentioned earlier, Michel de Montaigne, the Frenchman, because it, Stephen Toulmin in a book called Cosmopolis, he says probably Montaigne was the last person before this modern worldview kicked in that really believed that you could hold several diverse perspectives at the same time and they were all equally valid. Mm. So it'd be interesting to know, you know, and then and what happened next, and then what happened, and then how the whole thing then switched to a different point of view. To a well, what happened was that painters discovered perspective, and so therefore all the paintings had to all have one perspective, <laughs> and you didn't have triptychs the way you do in 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 the previous era. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Okay, my second one. What would be the most surprising or shocking, either one, breakthrough to happen in your field? What was or what would be? What, what would be? If you had to think of something that were you... If you oh, what, my goodness. It would be for, philosopher, for Anglo-American philosophers to take context seriously. Because after I wrote this book, I realized there's a whole chunk of the backstory that I left out, which is Anglo-American or language philosophy, linguistic philosophy from about 1915 to about 1916. And I was, as I was reading a, a bunch of new books, including one called The Women Are Up to Something. It was about women at, at Oxford and Cambridge in that period mm. when men were off to war. You know, like, isn't this interesting? They really tried to focus on the role of context in ethics and so on and so forth. 
and they tried, but once the men got back from the war, it's interesting that they that that all all this metaphysical baggage that I, we talked about already reasserted itself, and nothing nothing much changed. So that's why I never I don't read philosophy anymore. I read science because science is taking context more seriously than philosophy, Emmanuel American philosophy has. That as opposed to say continental philosophy, which did, except that continental philosophy is impenetrable. I mean, I can't read. Okay. <laughs> they're very hard to read and my last yes. um off the dome that i picked up my pen which dropped aristotle plato socrates they they are mentioned quite frequently in in your book and everyone knows these as household names of philosophy just as a as a fun way of asking this question people have heard this in cocktail aristotle plato socrates who would you date who would you marry and who would you keep as a consensual work collaborator <laughs> <sighs> I probably keep in the consensual collaborator Socrates because Socrates never wrote anything. And so his thing was dialogue. The ideas that are presented in Plato's dialogues are Plato's sort of more mature version of this is the answer. Mm. So the, 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 the conversation and the ongoing relationship with Socrates would probably be a lot easier. Okay. Plato, on the other hand, when talking about policy, somebody... Remember, Plato believed that that rulers of uh, the ideal society of his republic would be these guardians, right? And they would be trained from, they would be identified as children and trained to be guardians and so on. Like Jedi. And somebody asked him, somebody asked him, would you, um, would you accept women as guardians? And his answer, believe it or not, back then was, when I go to buy a bird dog, I don't ask if it's a female or a male, I just ask if it can hunt. So Plato was perfectly willing to allow women to be rulers, which is mind-boggling. And Aristotle, I think, I don't even know where that he would fit in, but what I like about Aristotle is certainly not very often his biology. His biology is flat out wrong, even though he was a biologist. But it was his willingness to look at the world around him. So I like his biology in the sense of look, you know, not, not, not doing not doing armchair philosophy or transcendental philosophy, but looking at the world and and trying to figure it out. He figured it out wrong. Well, that, you know, this is two thousand BC. I mean, whatever. But I like that aspect of it. Whereas Socrates never left after his uh, military service. He never left Athens. All he cared about was Athens. Well, hello. There's country, bigger world by out the there. Way. There's a bigger world out there which would give you maybe a different perspective. So each one I pick and choose <laughs> what I happen to like. Got it. Got it. Got it. See, painless. I promised you. Painless. Oh, thank section. you. Thank you. I thought you were asking what my favorite song was or some crazy thing like that. No, no, no. It's hard. It's hard or to pick a movie favorite. or something. It's hard to pick favorite songs yeah, and movies, yeah, right? right? They change that's over right, time. So right. I want to get to the final segment of the show, which is called yes. the drop. And the drop is just an opportunity to share anything at all um, with my listeners and my drop is a is a new series that I just started. I'm only one episode in, actually two, but I'm very intrigued about where this is going to go. It's called Pluto. It's on Netflix. Um, it's an anime series of so animation or anime style is not your bag. It might not be your thing, but if those are mediums that you enjoy, um, Pluto is one episode in, and I'm thoroughly intrigued about about where this is going to go. So that is my drop. 
Well, I this is the one I find most difficult um, because if I were to choose a movie, there was one called Chaos a number of years ago that I don't even remember who was in it. But it was an attempt to visualize all those interdependencies and, and back and forths. But that's about, that's all I can really, I, I, that's my, that one's a harder one for me. No, that's good. Um, I will look it up. It's called chaos. It was okay. it was an attempt to uh, explain ca- uh, complex systems visually and how complex attractors appear and so on. And that was a really interesting attempt. Attempt. Okay. To- Have to look it up. See, all of this is is <laughs> is is painless when it comes down yes, to it. It just it's just ideas. And 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 on that note, you know, I, Alicia, I really want to thank you. For being on a deep dive with me you know we made it happen thank you we, this was we fought fun. through the technology you made it happen <laughs> i just i was trying not to screw up as much as i did anyway no thank you very much it was really very enjoyable sometimes i feel that i don't explain things because i feel like i'm talking to somebody i've known for a long time and really understands this stuff and so you make it so easy that oh, i, thank I you. wasn't being uh, uh, flippant with something. No, like not at all. And this is we can cons- we would consider that goodbye an, an advertisement to future people to come on the show, Absolutely. right? I, I make, make this it, easy. <laughs> make it very easy. It feels like talking to an old friend. Thank you. Oh, that's the highest compliment that I could get. I really Thank appreciate you. Thank, you. you. Thank you so much. You can listen to the deep dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.